Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and, and pray. Um, and, and in our in our prayer together, um, I, I will be praying for for one of our own who um, has uh, begun to experience a lot of suffering. Um, but I, I want us to pray for that, uh, knowing that the God is wise and good, as I preached last week, and He provides uh, what we need. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are good, you are wise, you are righteous and merciful, you are just and gracious, and oh, so worthy of all of our praises, of all of our thoughts, of all of our actions being directed towards your worship. Oh God, we confess that that is not the case. We confess that often our actions are, and our thoughts are not just not directed to your worship, but they are also um, directed against you and against your worship. But we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you are slow to anger, and that you are a God who is so good that you have given us your only Son, that we would know you, and that we would know him, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We thank you that even while we live in a world of suffering, suffering in many ways, you are our king and we are your servants. We thank you that you have given us your church and that we serve you together, not isolated or by ourselves, but we serve you with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, we pray right now for Amy Clement, our sister, and, and her MS, Father, we ask that you uh, would make known to her your goodness. We ask as well, Father, that you would heal her. We ask that you would take this condition away. You know every hair on her head. You made every cell in her body and every part that's smaller than that that, that we cannot even detect. You know her intimately, and we pray that you would heal her. Yet we pray that your will would be done, O oh Father, for your will is good. And so we pray that you would give her great courage, great strength and faith, that you would give her great fellowship with her brothers and sisters around her, that we would encourage her, those who are here and those who are in Houston, that this would be an experience, regardless of the results, that would give her greater faith and trust in you, and that would make her more like Jesus. And we pray that for all of us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That we would know who you are. And in knowing and beholding that, we would believe and become more like you. We pray that we would bear your image in this world. And as a result, that we would extend your supremacy among each other to Waco and throughout your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we're, we're continuing with the, the same passage in Luke's Gospel. Last week, it was a little bit more of the roots, and this week, it'll be a little bit more of the fruits. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that language here. And, of course, you can't have one without the other. You, you clearly can't have fruit without the root, and if the root doesn't bear fruit, then it is, unfortunately, uh, it, is, it is a dead root. So... We're going to continue with this passage. 
Uh, So please stand for the reading of God's Word. The passage is Luke 12, verses 13 through 34. And it's fitting to say from Isaiah, uh, as Jesus speaks about the grass of the field, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord is forever. Verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for this specific passage. Oh, Father in heaven, we worry a lot and often, and in doing so, uh, it is evident that we have such little faith. Give us the faith to believe that you are who you've said you are, and that you have done what you have done, and to believe that you will do what you have promised. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us now, that it would, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be in me, that he would carry the words I speak, and would break into the hearts of everyone here, that he would break deep in, that he would show us who we are and show us who you are, and that he would lead us to flee to our Lord Jesus. It is through him we pray, amen. 
So, so just as a, as a, as a brief uh, reminder, or if, or if someone wasn't here last Sunday, we looked at this passage and really kind of concentrated on this idea of abundance or great need and the fact that God provides. And, and, and the thing that I tried to get at was the idea that we need to prioritize our needs and desires rightly in contrast um, to our idolatry. We need to understand those needs and desires in relationship to God and His goodness, to the fact that God says He will provide for us. And in doing that, we can boldly petition our Father for our needs. Yet, we can also have, and here's my alliteration that I left out last week, contentment, confidence, and comfort. We can have contentment, confidence, and comfort on the, basis of our good, on the basis of our good shepherd when our father sees something better for us than what we uh, believe we need. So even in times of want and suffering. So while I may say, and, and you can ask the students I teach, while I do say, I need coffee, if left with the option between you have, for some whatever reason, you can have your coffee this afternoon or you can have lunch, I'll gladly choose lunch. Or, or in a or more extreme circumstance, if I have some medical condition and the, and the doctor says, Thomas, you have to quit drinking coffee. That's your problem. Uh, you must stop. While I may be disappointed, I'll gladly stop drinking coffee. I'll be delighted to know that's the problem. Um, so I'll prioritize my needs and my desires, rightly knowing my health is more important than my taste for coffee. And we see this in the fact that it is the Father that Jesus ultimately speaks of in this passage, right? And, and so in examples of earthly fathers or our heavenly Father, we know that the Father is out for the good of his children, um, at least in, in, in the, the circumstances with earth, earthly fathers that are, that are the way they should be, right? So the Father is out for his child, out for his child's good, whether it's in giving him, and giving him abundance, whether it's in withholding something, and even in the case of discipline. Right, it's, it's not the good parent um, who doesn't discipline his child. The, the parents today who say, we don't want to discipline our child, we love him too much, is in fact not loving his child. He's in fact not loving his child enough to do the things that are difficult to do. And, and it's exactly the same with the father. And, and in this passage we saw that this is proven by the fact that we have a good shepherd, that God is our good shepherd in Christ, and that he has laid down his life for us. So if he has done that much good for us, what else will he not do? So believing that and knowing that, we then can, as Jesus says, we can seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to us. And we can, as in verse 32, we can fear not little flock, knowing that our Father, it is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And so that's what I want us to consider today, how believing in this, believing in our Father's goodness to provide for our daily needs, as well as, as His goodness to provide our Good Shepherd, enables us to seek the kingdom and live kingdom lives. So in this passage, the kingdom kind of seems to be an underlying principle and it ultimately comes to be central in the last few verses. In 31, we see, seek his kingdom, these things will be added. 32, 
your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And even in 33 and 34, though the word kingdom isn't used, he's talking about treasure in heaven, treasure where uh, moth does not destroy. Jesus still seems to be talking about the kingdom. So the kingdom is certainly central to this passage. So there's a couple of things I want us to consider. Um, From this passage, just glancing at it, we get that we're to seek the kingdom, and we also get that it's our Father's good pleasure to give it to us. So I guess we should probably ask, what is the kingdom? What does it mean to seek the kingdom? What does life in the kingdom look like? And how can we live life in the kingdom? So first, what is the kingdom? Now that is, is not something that is easy to say. It is central to, to the Gospels, it is central to the New Testament, and it's really central to all of the Bible. But if we open the Gospels, we see the kingdom, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, especially in the case of, of the Gospel of Matthew, to turn to any page and not have the word kingdom there. Yet it's still incredibly difficult to say what it is. On one page, it might say that the kingdom is now, the kingdom is among you, it is here. On another page, it might say, the kingdom, and speak of it as if it's a long ways off. So it's here now, but then it's in the future. And then in other passages, it may just say something that's really confusing, such as, the kingdom of heaven is like, and fill in something that people in the 21st century may have never seen or experienced. So it's, it's not easy to say, yet it's central to God's word. So I think, just to to, to give us a basic description, I'll go with that that in this passage and in others, the kingdom is the already but not yet reign of God. So what, what that means, the already means that God is reigning now, although it is with opposition, right? The opposition of our own sin and the opposition of the sin and the way sin affects the world. The not yet is that God will reign someday without any opposition. The opposition of sin, of death, and destruction will not exist. So it's the already but not yet reign of God. And in the Gospels we see the already inextricably tied to salvation. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in the Gospels, and we're looking specifically at Luke, the kingdom is very tied to salvation. It's very tied to eternal life. And so there's one aspect about the already kingdom, the kingdom that's tied to our salvation that I want us to look at. There's a great number that we could look at, but there's one that I want us to consider in asking what is the kingdom, and that's liberation. And right, today, liberation is, is, is a loaded word. It's a bombshell, especially if you attach it to Christianity, to theology. So I'm not, if you've heard of it, I'm not speaking about liberation theology, a view that sees Christianity as a political model to liberate from poverty and to get rid of economic and social inequality. Well, while those are things that may 
be good or, or maybe something that one day God will take care of. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the liberation that we see in Romans 6, 13-14, where Paul writes, in the context of talking about our being slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's the liberation that I'm wanting us to consider. When he says, for sin will have no dominion. Dominion, and its Greek counterpart, it's a kingdom word. Dominion speaks of the rule of someone. In this case, it's the rule of God and our being under grace. So, this is the liberation I want us to speak about. But, but let me say, it, it, it's no, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that there are people that see liberation of the poor or, of the, um, or liberation of, of, of social inequalities as the, the central most thing in life because liberation is, is an, it's, it's an incredible thing. You, you may have seen or read about it in the news, but on July 2nd, the, the Colombian government did a really sneaky and incredible rescue of a number of hostages, three Americans, a French woman, and a number of others from the uh, Colombian Armed Revolutionary Forces, or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, something like that. Some of these, some of these prisoners had been held captive for, for five or ten years, and the Colombian government landed a helicopter, convinced the captors that they were from on their side and they were transporting the prisoners somewhere else. If you go online, you can watch videos of it. They're filming it. The prisoners are yelling at the camera, thinking they're yelling at their captors. When they load everyone on the helicopter, they take off and they say, we are the Colombian government and you are free. And, and tears flow. It is incredible. And this is, the libera- this is the liberation from sin that we have, from being slaves to sin that Paul talks about in Romans 6, 13 and 14. Is that incredible? It is liberation from an oppressive force, something that's far more oppressive than, than, than poverty, than social inequality, or anything like that. So liberation, then, is one aspect of the kingdom, of even the kingdom already that I want us to keep in mind as we go through and as we, 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 we discover what is going on with the kingdom in this passage. So then, what does it mean to seek the kingdom? So the kingdom's the already but not yet reign of God. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom? It's not a place, right? It, seek might be a word you could use to talk about finding a place. Um, there's the, the, the famous Forrest Gump scene, if you remember that movie, where the Lieutenant Dan character says, have you found Jesus? And he says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. It's, it's not that literal sense. We should think of it as seeking after or striving for something. And in this passage, we see it in a couple of different spots. In verse 15, um, we see that life is not in the abundance of our possessions. In verse 23, we see that life is more than food. And then in verse 31, as a conclusion of all that, we see, seek the kingdom and these things will be added. 
So I think in a very basic sense, we can say that to seek the kingdom is to not attempt to find life in the things of the world, but instead to find life in God, to find life in his kingdom, to find life in Christ, right? So to understand our lives as they are, as they consist in being God's people, as opposed to understanding our lives as consisting of whether abundance or riches, food or clothing or anything like that. And like I spoke about last week, knowing that if we lose all of those things, we still don't lose life. If we have Christ, we have life. And so, just to add another bit to this, we see in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, I think a glimpse of what this kingdom seeking looks like. It reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things that are above. Orient your life around things that are above, more than you oriented around things that are below. So then, if seeking the kingdom means finding life in the kingdom rather than finding life in our earthly possessions, then what does life in the kingdom look like? So we've seen what is the kingdom, what is seeking the kingdom. So if we're to seek the kingdom, what does life in the kingdom look like? And I think that Jesus ultimately is getting at that some in this passage. Now, to, to his original audience, right, he's, he's speaking to the, the crowd when he tells the, the parable of the rich fool, and then when he, tells, when he says, do not be anxious, he's speaking to his disciples. But I think to, to his original audience, the word kingdom would have, or should have at least, conjured ideas of, of, of a restoration of theocracy, of God being the ruler, of what they had in some ways with Moses, in the desert, and what they ultimately had with David and then Solomon for a while. Um, life under God's law. So I think when Jesus says kingdom, a lot of this original audience probably would have thought, yes, kingdom, God's law. We've been wanting it back. God's law alone, not the law of the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or these nasty Romans. God's law. And so what is desirable about God's law, what, what they saw in that, at least in part, not, this might not be all of it, is that life under God's law signified the reign of God. It gave them a standard of righteousness or a way to live before God. And as, 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 it was, as God's law was part of a covenant, it was the basis of blessings. But, as I just read in Romans 6, we are not under law, but under grace. So, what does life in the kingdom look like then for us? We're not under law, but under grace. And I think what the original audience who was thinking God's law was looking for uh, was really the blessing of God's rule and righteousness. And, and that's what we get in Christ in the New Testament. So another, another word for at least uh, the, the second point of the standard of righteousness would be an ethic of righteousness. Something in it 
shows how we live, how, that, that answers the question, how ought I live? And that's something that no doubt Christians everywhere are concerned with, right? And, and often end up focusing only on that and forgetting that God is in fact gracious, just wanting to know, how do I live? How do I live? Pastor, tell me what to do, and I'll go do it. So I think, though, we get all three in the New Testament and in Christ. We get the reign of God, the kingdom. We get uh, the uh, covenant blessings in Christ. And we also get an ethic of righteousness or a standard of righteousness. And that, that, that I'm wanting to, to look at that one little bit, the ethic of righteousness as well, because in this passage, Jesus seems to be making some pretty serious kingdom demands. And that's where a lot of this is going. He makes some pretty serious kingdom demands about our lives and how we live. And so this ethic of righteousness is a part of the kingdom. We see it in Matthew five seventeen to 20 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish the law. Right? The things that God has given in the law, those aren't just gone. He's fulfilled it. And there are certainly, as you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there are certainly many moral imperatives, many things that Jesus says, here's how you should live. Here's how you ought to live. And really throughout so much of the New Testament, there's no shortage of, whether in Gospels or Epistles, there's no shortage of, this is how you should be. Do not be greedy or lustful. Be full of love, patience, be kind, I mean, the fruits of the Spirit, but, but even stuff elsewhere. Be full of hope. So there's no doubt that there is a way for Christians to live. And, and then that is connected to the kingdom. In, in Matthew's passage that runs parallel to what we have right here in Luke, uh, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then in Romans 14, in a slightly different context, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or, and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and, the, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus then gives us at least a bit, or at least points to somewhat of a kingdom ethic, an ethic of righteousness, of what does life look like in the kingdom and it is, it's, it's intense. His demands are tough. He includes sell your possessions and give to the needy, create, make money bags that don't grow old, and, and store treasures in heaven. So how can we live up to these kingdom demands? And, and it's not easy. We, we can't ignore their intensity. I mean, I, I think that if we read the Sermon on the Mount or read a lot of these types of passages in the, in the Gospels, if, if we read them without shifting in our seats and feeling uncomfortable, then we need to probably evaluate our hearts. So with one of them, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Uh, and in a way, I think that's what we addressed last week. We live up to that by trusting in our Father and knowing that He is good that he's proven that with a good shepherd and that he provides for our needs. But what about this? What about the big one? Verse 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
And in a number of other translations other than the, the ESV, they don't say needy. They say sell your possessions and give to the poor, sell your possessions and give alms, sell your possessions and give to charity. So, so what does this mean? Are we, are we to go close bank accounts tomorrow? Are we to go put everything on the market, flood the market, sell it all and give it away? I think it's important for us to know and to recognize that the man who sells everything doesn't necessarily have the kingdom, right? If you make yourself very poor, that, that's not entrance into the kingdom. So what I think we need to consider is how do these things fit in the order of your needs and most importantly your life, your possessions, how do they fit in the order of your needs and most importantly your life? I think when... It, Jesus says, sell your possessions. We consider that, and we ultimately need to arrive at the conclusion that those are things that we must be willing to let go of. Those are things that we cannot cling to so tightly that that we're finding our life in them. Right? We need to be clinging to Christ and finding our life there. The possessions in and of themselves are not evil, but we need to not cling to them in a way that we can't let go. So how... How, how might this look, then, in your life? How might this look in Waco? What, what about money? Right? There, there's, there's a couple of things I want to look at when he says, sell your possessions, but what about money? Um, there's plenty of poverty in this town. Um, and, and I think, and I'm speaking about my own self right here, But I I, I worry that we have a tendency, American Christians today have a tendency to to quickly justify not caring for the poor. And and of course, there are measures of prudence, right? There are measures of prudence in which there comes a point when dealing with with the poor or with a particular poor person that, that, that one says, you know, you're, you're gonna have to be on your own. But at the same time, and again, I'm saying I'm speaking of my own experience. It's really easy to pass the guy who approaches you in the grocery store parking lot and think he's going to squander it. It's his fault that he's like this. He's going to waste it. He probably wants to buy booze or drugs or whatever. He's not going to waste it. And and, and for the life of me, as I've thought through this and, and, and really felt conviction about it since moving from Waco and then becoming more surprised in the Metroplex when I see poverty. I think in Waco you get used to it. Um, in, in Dallas or in Fort Worth, you see it and, you're, and you kind of say, wow, that guy doesn't have a BMW. Um, and, and, and considering this, for the life of me, I, haven't, I, I don't know of a place in the New Testament where Jesus is telling us to be compassionate to the poor or to give to the poor with the condition that they deserve it or earn it or, or, or haven't put themselves in that position. Um, and, and especially for me, this will be the last bit of this confession of mine. I'll spend two bucks on an espresso and won't even think about it. And, and then I'll, I'll think a long time and, and justify why I shouldn't give two bucks to the man 
who's poor and ragged, who may squander it, but nonetheless, um, he is the poor. But what about your money and possessions? Letting go of these things, how, how does this affect our lives with each other, with our church? I think we do the offering after, worship, or after, after the sermon, and we don't have a box in the back because the offering is part of our worship. It's, it's not just this thing we check off, I've, I've tithed, I've made the calculation, it's just enough, not too much, um, and I've, I've snuck it in the box. We, we do it and pass it among each other because it is worship. We worship together and we worship God with what he has given us. Right, So that is what doesn't, in fact, belong to us. So we can let go of these things in the case of those around us right here and in the case of this church as far as our money goes. But another thing that doesn't belong to us is our time. Now, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pressing this. I don't want to press this in a way to, to push our cultural overdrive um, even harder. I think we... we are so exhausted culturally from putting our time into so many things. Yet, I do want to point out, our time is not ours. Just in the way that when we give the offering, we recognize that God has given those things to you, and you're then letting go of them and giving them back in worship, our time, whether it be the time with your family, whether it be time here in the body, or even time out in Waco, the time is not yours. And so... I'm sure that there are ways that we can let go of that, um, that we can sell that possession, so to say, and find ourselves serving God's kingdom and living kingdom lives among each other and in the church. And then, of course, our gifts. Your gifts are not yours. These are things that you do not need to, to cling to in a way that asks, how can, it, how can it serve me? But how can our gifts serve this church? How can our gifts serve others beyond the church? So, even if we don't mean to sell it all, what I'm speaking about is a detachment. A detachment from the things that we hold tight on to. Whether it be money or possessions, whether it be time, whether it be our image that, that it keeps us from being humble and serving others. And we can do this I think this passage tells us that we can do this on the basis of what we looked at last week. Because our Father provides for our needs in the short term with food and clothing and in the long term with giving us a good shepherd, the one thing we need most. And providing for our needs, we can trust and know that God has given us everything we need and that God will continue to. So that if we let go of these things, if we let go of something like this, That's not the end of life. God gives us what we need. Now, this is the key. Here's the key to all of this. Um, Right right now, I've, I've, I've probably heaped a burden on us. Right? We need to sell our possessions. We need to let go of these things, whether it be in regard to the church or whether even it be in regard to... Um to the poor that, that you see uh, just about any time you drive through downtown. But here's, here's, here's what we must know, right? I said at the beginning, this is fruit 
and where there is fruit, there must be root. And here's the root of it all. In verse 34 where Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there will, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure is these possessions, your heart will be with them, and it will be painful to let go of them, if not impossible. But if you're like the man in the parable of Matthew 13, 44 to 46, it might not be so tough. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The merchant, the man who found the field, they had no problem selling everything they had to get the one thing that they had found that was of inestimable value. The one thing that was truly valuable, the one thing they had been looking for for a long time, perhaps all their lives. So we need to know That something valuable is easy to give up other things. It's easy to give up other things for something valuable. So, what is it then that is worth giving our lives up for, that is worth letting go and, in a sense, selling our possessions? It is finding life, finding our confidence, contentment, and comfort in Christ and our Good Shepherd rather than in money or anything else. I think money is used specifically here and in in numerous passages where Jesus is speaking about the kingdom and speaking about eternal life because money is, is the thing that is probably just the most common place for us to put our confidence and our comfort and our contentment. It's really easy to do that with money. We do it with all sorts of other things, but it's very easy. And that's where Jesus speaks about the kingdom and says it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for, a king to, uh, than for a camel to be threaded through the eye of a needle. And in that passage, his disciples respond, uh, and ultimately he says, it is only possible with God when they say, this isn't possible. So let me say, this kingdom life, creating money bags that do not grow old, treasures in heaven, is not a reward system. Or to give a a fancy legal term, it's not a system of just desserts. It's not a system of you do this and you've earned this. Right? There's There's no specific reward that you achieve by letting go of possessions, by worshiping God with your offerings, by giving to the poor. That 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 doesn't increase some bank account in heaven. And the reason I say this, and I think it's best expressed in the words of a song by a guy named Derek Webb, is that we already have all the rewards. We already have all the rewards. He, he, he sings, Beloved, there is nothing more, no more blessing and no more rewards than the treasure of my body and blood given freely to all daughters and sons. So Jesus has made some very intense Demands for life in the kingdom. And it's a life that, that can't be lived apart from him. 
But it is because of him that we can then live that. When we behold the treasure that is our good shepherd who has laid down our life for us, when we behold the treasure of God's goodness and his value, then we will desire it more than anything. When we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we believe that this good shepherd has laid down his, is so good to us that he has laid down his life for us. Then we will value that more than anything, and it will then become easy to let go of these things. It'll be easy to sell possessions. Now, because this is the not yet part of the kingdom, the already part of the kingdom, actually, because this is the already part of the kingdom, we're still sinful, so it is still tough, right? It's, it's tough to, to let go, and, and, it, and it may require suffering sometimes. I, I think one of the best things I've ever heard in regard to that was, was David Gibson up here speaking as a deacon when the Lee, when the Lee family lost all of their possessions in a fire, and he, he called on our congregation to suffer with them and not just to be sorry or to be sad, but, and, but to give to them in a way that's not just your excess, to give, to give in a way that, that will cause yourselves to suffer with them. So, so it may cause suffering, but what I want to say to end is that this is a joyful obligation, which is something that's very difficult to, for us to understand today joyful obligation right typically an obligation is something you really don't want um, it's something you have to do it's really frustrating it's it, it gets in the way of the other things you do want or do want to do and it isn't joyful but this living a kingdom life is a joyful obligation because we have what is of utmost value that's a good shepherd who has laid down his life for us who has given us everything let us pray Father in heaven, to what, to lo- what limit would you not go in doing things for our good and providing for our needs if you have given your only son, if you have given him flesh to come into our sinful and wicked world, and you have given him our sin and punished him for it? with suffering on a cross, but even greater suffering than experiencing your wrath and experiencing forsakenness. What good, O Father, would you not give us? Father, I pray that you would give us faith to believe. First, that you have given us this good, that you have given us your Son, and that he is paid in full in such a way that it is true for him to say it is finished. And I pray that in it being finished and our having faith to believe that, you would give us faith to trust in your provision, to trust that you will give us everything that we need, whether it's what we expect or whether it isn't. And I pray that in that, you would make us more like Jesus, that you would give us compassion for the poor, that you would give us love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as love for the rest of Waco and love for the world beyond. We pray that in doing that, your kingdom would be extended. 
that it would go out and that it would be glorious, that you would be worship. Give us hearts to worship and enable us to be like the man who found a field of great value or the man who found the pearl of great value. Let us see the value and how truly worthy Jesus is and let us worship him. We pray this in his name. Amen.